a lot of our processes have actually remained mostly the same, which is great. So what I was saying earlier about, you know, build a great product experience and move your KPIs, like that's still core to what we're doing. It's just, I think we see now GPT as being like a really awesome tool to build with. And we're, we're at the forefront of building consumer products with this technology. So a lot of those things remain the same actually, which is, okay, can we make sure we know exactly what learners are struggling with? You know, for instance, they're not uh, getting opportunities to speak or they're not getting opportunities to listen or converse with somebody. Um, can you figure out a good way to solve the problem? And then can you actually implement and measure that you're making an effective change? It really is that like solution generation part that starts to become like, that's very much so changed um, building with GPT. And if you, you know, you, you happen to watch the talk, one of the takeaways we try to add there is called start with the prompt. Um, Hello, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of the Breakdown Podcast. Today, we have with us Edwin Bosch. Edwin is a principal product manager at Duolingo and has played a significant role in building Duolingo's flagship GPT-4 language product called Duolingo Max. In this episode, Edwin breaks down the product journey for Duolingo Max, shares his insight on product monetization, and also shares some actionable tips for AI product managers. So without further ado, let's jump straight into the show. Welcome, Edwin. We're so honored to have Edwin Bosch on our new episode of this podcast. And he's a principal product manager leading the monetization at Dolingo right now. And also he talked on the Config 2023 about the implementation of the ChatGPT, which was very amazing um, topic. So welcome. Thank you very much. Really excited to be here. And um, thank you both for, for having me along. Great. Uh, thanks, Edwin. It's a pleasure to talk to you on the podcast. Um, I I wanted to like just go back in time with the, with the first question and just put some light on, on your early days. So you, you graduated from Duke in 2018 with an electrical and computer science engineering degree. Um, and I think we both share this this common thing. I also did my electrical and computer science uh, engineering um, uh, back in 20, 2016. And then basically Duolingo was your first job out of college. And five years later, you're a principal product manager leading the most important product initiatives within the company. So how did all that happen? Like, how did you decide to pursue electrical and computer science engineering in the first place? And then when did the transition to product happen? Um, wow, okay. Really throwing it back. Um, but yes, well, I started a, uh, graduated from college uh, in, in engineering, which is just a technical field that I've loved since I was really, really young. And I will, I will say one small thing there, which is leading, uh, you, you mentioned leading the most important product initiatives of the company. Maybe I can rephrase that to leading some of the most uh, important initiatives. I mean, we're just a small slew of awesome things that are happening at Duolingo. Um, okay. I started actually in biomedical engineering, and I thought I was going to be a doc. I wanted to be a doctor. Um, to be honest, completely honest, I think I wanted to be a doctor because I was like, well, let me go and like find this job that may- might pay really well. And... That was one of the worst things that I could have done. I realized pretty early on that I just wasn't that interested into it. And I constantly kept coming back to the idea of, well, can I build something? Like, I really just loved building things. And I've been building things when I was in high school, when I was in elementary school, little Arduino circuits or Raspberry Pis or whatever they might be, just trying to program things and understand like, okay, what's a cool need? What's a cool problem that someone has or even some like technical challenge that could be interesting? And could I then put some skills behind it to go and build it. And that's where I, throughout all of college, I started shifting more towards um, electrical engineering and and really more towards software engineering. I did a few internships throughout college that were all uh, software and hardware based. Um, and over time, started to speak with some folks that are a couple of years earlier than me who were doing similar things where they were doing software engineering, but then had discovered this product management role, which... I had never heard about until junior year. Uh, I actually happened to be studying abroad at the time in France using Duolingo to learn a language. 
also heard about this product management role at the same time, and it started to feel really interesting. And I can maybe go into that in a second as well, uh, but kind of became this perfect marriage of, well, turns out Duolingo had an APM internship role. I was interested in that and was using the product really religiously to try and learn French. And um, fate had it. I was lucky enough to get the internship and started my PM career from there. Wow, that's that's an interesting story. So you were already a user, and you liked the product so much that you thought it'd be it'll be good to intern there. That's that's such a good story. It was definitely uh, um, not a lot of people knew about it back then. People did, like I think. Uh, of my group of friends that was studying abroad together, I think about half had heard of Duolingo at the time, which now, of course, we're fortunate that most people, you know, across all demographics have heard of Duolingo. Um, we still have a long way to go. But it was kind of an interesting case where I had used the product. I really fell in love with it. It was really helping me learn French. Um, but also, I was able to kind of see and understand places where I could see the product improving and where I wanted to try and help solve the product. And that gave me a lot of excitement to try and jump in and, and be a part of the team. Excellent. Yeah, very, very interesting, like career pivot. So I have also have a follow-up question is you mentioned that you actually very enjoying building stuff programming. So after and you randomly bumped into product management. So after you actually, you know, becoming a product manager and also like explore for like five years on this. Um, road. So do you feel like it's actually something like really like compassionate you or you feel like can like a will uh, like stay a far away probably from the programming. So is that something really surprised you after you become a PM? Um, yeah, just out of curiosity. It definitely, you know, I definitely still have that itch. Um, I think especially with this new wave of AI and and with all these cool new products we're able to build, there's definitely this sense of desire when I'll like sit down with an engineer and they'll actually go and build the thing. And I'm like, oh man, like I kind of want to have my hands dirty and go and actually and actually build the app. Um, but I mean, product is such an interesting role where you get to take on user problems, you understand metrics well, you understand the design cases, and you get to work with so many different functions in a collaborative format to eventually, the goal is, of course, build a really cool product. And I, I've actually found over time that that's been really fulfilling to me, is to be able to work with all of these different cross-functional partners, work with a user researcher and figure out, well, what are what is the problem we're actually trying to solve? What is that learner dealing with? All the way across to, okay, let's go and actually implement it and pull up, polish those final details to get a product out to the our users and then seeing our metrics go up into the right um, at least when they, they usually do, and that historically at Duolingo they have, um, that has been fulfilling to me as as kind of building the holistic product with a team, as opposed to just, you know, being down in the code. Gotcha, gotcha. But end of the day, it's like, no matter which role engineers or PMs, they have the common goal, which is a build a better product for the users. Um, so that's really leads to my next question is, um, so as a PM, we know there is a very like different type of PMs in different vertical. Um, seems like you have been working in the monetization strategy for a very long time. And also we know like Duolingo is a very user-friendly app and also very, you know, uh, I think your mission is kind of like making the language, different language more accessible to other people, like very similar to Google. But like monetization seems like uh, is on the, the other way um, side of this mission. So um, would you mind like talking more about what is like the monetization strategy and how do you think about it to implement or make money out of like this kind of like learning app or educational app? Yeah, um, I might answer this in like, in perhaps two parts. And the first one that actually you touched on really well there is the fact that product managers can have so many different hats or so be so it's a very very wide uh, array of roles that you can have as a pm and maybe how that also then relates to our monetization strategy um different companies have completely different uses of product managers within duolingo though pretty much every pm is very much so consumer facing 
there are a few small exceptions, but for the most part, everybody is working on a product that is in our one of our apps, consumer facing. And their two main jobs are um, put the learner first and build a really great product experience that is going to help them teach well. And the second one is improve their metrics so their their key KPIs, their key performance indicators. Um, at the core, that's what all of our PMs do. And actually, honestly, the first one is probably the most important. Uh, is just deliver and maintain a really great experience for our learners. We have a huge, really high bar for quality. So our PMs are really forced as well to be involved with design, whereas maybe at other companies, they're a little bit less of a designer, maybe more on like the engineering technical side, but our PMs are very, very design and, and user research related. So within all of that, um, our monetization PMs operate in a very similar way across, you know, to the other PMs of the company build a really great product for their learners, whether that be the subscription product or the ads product or the in-app purchase product, or here's this new way of learning how to speak a language and then also grow your metric, but also without hurting other metrics. And that's very much so how the monetization strategy operates at Duolingo, which was we have this mission, deliver, uh, build the best education in the world and make it universally available. And a big piece of that is we have to make it universally available, which essentially means free. And that's at a very interesting odds with building a subscription where you want to dangle some carrot and say, hey, I have something that you want. I'm going to put it behind a paywall. It's a really hard line to draw when you're also trying to make the entire app free. Um, this guidance, though, around how do we actually build a great product and also build to build increase a KPI without hurting other KPIs helps us a lot because my role is not to just recklessly increase bookings. We want to make sure that we increase bookings, but also make sure we're not hurting free user retention or daily active users or some of these other things that really help us as a business where the business grows, people have an amazing and delightful experience. They tell their friends, we grow more. It's kind of this big viral loop. We really have to focus on how do we build a product that doesn't alienate the owners who decide, hey, I don't want to pay, but we're still able to get a few percentage points of learners to pay, which ends up being quite a quite a large amount of money uh, at our scale. Yes, interesting. Um, yeah, I also have like some follow up question. Is I know you you kind of like mentioned that you want to balance uh, like the basic experience, which is basically the I assume is the like most uh, the largest percentage of the user base, which is the free users. You want to like give them the good user experience without like disturbing them too much. Let's say put too much pop-up window say, oh, do you want to have a subscription? And also you want to, you know, because people pay, so people, they are expecting some more premium features, which they cannot expect or enjoy when they are free, like free uh, users. So how do you, how, like, and also you mentioned that's like, Dolingo is a very user experience focus. Like how do you, when you design the monetization, let's say subscription, or you were thinking about the pricing strategy, how do you actually, you know, uh, design those features in the user flow? Um, um, the, uh, it's always hard to draw like a perfect line of like, here are exactly our principles, but I can, I can talk through a few that might help. The first principle we always have is that any content that is on our path that should be available to a free learner, we just, we don't monetize. So anything that is like, would prohibit them from going down our main tree, we, we don't put behind a paywall. And one of the main reasons for that is, especially with the advent of so many of these great new AI models or large language models, anybody, and actually sometimes our CEO will say like two people in a garage could go and just build a ton of language content and build something similar. Now, of course, we have a lot of other things in Duolingo that help differentiate us. And we have a big moat with our brand and with our content and our so much data we have about learners. But in essence, like we just don't want to put something behind a paywall because that's how Duolingo became so popular. As we said, hey, everything's free. Whereas some of the other competitors about 10 years ago were all paywalled. That's one big thing we make sure we don't do. So off the bat, that's kind of like a, a no-go. From there, um, we have a combination of some things that perhaps like add a little bit of friction to the freemium experience. So for instance, we show ads and we also have this concept called parts and neither of those will actually prevent you from accessing content. 
you can always there's always a way to continue going on duolingo but they're just things that add a little bit of friction and so for those people who really want the seamless experience they can upgrade and no ads is a really common thing across all um across all freemium models so it's obviously not too big of a of a revolutionary feature but then some of the other features we do subscribe because as you as you mentioned you buy you finally buy this thing you're like well what do i get with this besides just removing ads and another way that we've thought about this is we can use our subscription to allow you to re-access content that you may have seen before in a more efficient way. And a great example of this is we have this feature we call mistakes list. It used to be called mistakes inbox, but essentially you'll always revisit some mistakes that you make later in the course. If you make a mistake, we want you to come back and try it again. So we'll eventually recycle it into further practice nodes as you go down the path. But Learners actually are crazy about wanting to practice their mistakes. They, like we found from user research, they love seeing a list of mistakes and being like, yes, I want to like practice all these things. So one thing we built is what we called mistakes inbox, where almost like an email, we just, every time you make a mistake, we just stack it up in this list. And you're going to see them later on in the course. Like you will eventually get that number down to zero naturally. But a lot of learners see that number. That's like, hey, you got five mistakes. And all they want to do is hit, yep. I'm going to, I want to clear this right now. I want to get to inbox zero. And it's one of those where it's actually more of a convenience-based feature as opposed to like a giving too much like unique value behind the subscription. But it's something that's that's worked really well. And in our tests, it was really positive for subscription bookings with basically zero impact on free user retention. So the free users who chose to ignore that button, they continued on the path perfectly normal, but we were able to get some new subscribers from it. Very interesting. It sounds like you also uh, combine the gamification design into the monetization because you are basically, you are kind of like using the philosophy the user wants. So, you know, I need to figure this out. I need to crack this mistake right away. And you like come out of the monetization out of date. Very smart. We so definitely look... Oh. We, yeah, I mean, gamification is a really a huge critical part of of how we build product. Um, we actually have this concept called Game Club at Duolingo, where we uh, roughly once a month or if it's every other month, we'll pick a game, usually a mobile game, uh, and play it a bunch and just like understand what mechanics they have going on. And we've actually built a lot of features based on that. Mistakes Inbox is an example I just mentioned. We have a leaderboard system. Um, which is a pretty simple weekly leaderboard where you can move up or down just based on the amount of XP you've used. And it's a fairly simple mechanic, um, but it's one that we saw a couple implementations across different apps. And we draw a lot of inspiration from different games to try and understand how we could actually motivate learners to, to stay on Duolingo more. Um, one of the hardest things to do with language learning, of course, teaching a language is hard, but very much so it's just the area under the curve. It's how much time are you actually spending learning a language? And that's why using gamification tactics to keep you on the app, to keep you doing more and more every single day uh, is a huge part of our strategy and why we've had a lot of success. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Gamification drive both the engagement and the monetization. Uh, very smart. And one more like follow-up question with this. And you also you also mentioned that you also like, as even though Dolingo as the first like player in this market, um, so you are also kind of like, you know, uh, threatened by all those AI tools, uh, especially this large language model booms. So, cause I, I also like, I'm also a big fan of Dolingo and I saw the, you like Dolingo Max is $30 per month. It's actually way more expensive than the, you know, the Dolingo Super. So like, can you talk a little bit um, like a little bit more about the pricing strategy and like, cause me myself and is also like developing some AI tools. It's really hard for me to, you know, come up with a exactly number. How much should I charge for this AI feature and uh, how much like the user will actually pay? It's a great question. So for context, we rolled out a very early version of a subscription called Duolingo Max uh, or earlier this year, which was um, a, a joint launch with OpenAI as they launched GPT-4. So we were fortunate to have 
access to GPT-4 a few months in advance and we're able to start building on it, which is awesome. We have two new features, role play and explain my answer that power Duolingo Max. Uh, and it is it is priced actually quite high. So it's a higher tier than our existing Super, super Duolingo subscription. Um, and this is for a few reasons. The first one is our scale is such that trying to offer um, an, a GPT-4 powered feature online for a learner is really costly. Um, and we, it, it just, it costs money like tokens, as you know, tokens cost money, um, you know, yeah. limit. Yeah. yeah, it's free. But when you've got, you know, a couple million subscribers on super and, it, you know, you, you eventually will inherit quite a bit of cost. So trying to build a feature and put it straight in a super Duolingo was just not going to quite work for us. That's why we went ahead and we'd always wanted to build a higher tier subscription talking about, you know, seeing other apps that we were really excited about. We've seen other subscription tiers and have really always wanted to build a second subscription tier. So Duolingo Max made a lot of sense for us there. And as for pricing, we're still experimenting with it. We're still trying to understand what the optimal price is going to be. But for us as a business, um, we have to balance both some consumer research that we've done about where we think price should actually be and where what we think people will pay for. And we there's some great pricing research you can do. There's a model called Van, I think it's called Van Westerndorp pricing model, which allows you to kind of understand a little bit better about where people might actually be willing to pay for things. Essentially, you ask them, um, what would be, a, you tell them what the current price is, you tell them what the new features are, you ask them, what is an acceptable price? What is a price that's too expensive? And what's a price that's way too expensive? And it actually turns out people are usually willing to pay kind of in between those last two. Like, kind of seems weird, but that's maybe just an indication of survey bias where People will say acceptable for something that they think is actually really, really low. And people are actually, the optimal price is usually, and obviously caveat that quite a bit, in that higher range between like expensive or too expensive. Um, so some things there. And then the other one is, of course, we as a business are thinking mostly about um, aggregate dollars that we bring in. So of course, there's, a, there's the amount of money we get. We lose some money from the App Store because they take a cut of any subscription sale through iOS or Android. And then there's the cost of the OpenAI tokens. And that's that's kind of how we get to a number. Great. Um, yeah, I think for for reference, uh, the pricing model that you mentioned is, is called Van Western Dop. And I will include that in, in the show notes for anyone who wants to refer that. That's a pretty good uh, pricing model. Um, so Ed, Edwin, uh, I think you, you mentioned branding uh, somewhere in one of your answers, and I just wanted to just dive deep into into it. I think Duolingo, since it's very early stage, pioneered branding and also gamification. Um, you have you've always had that the green bird as as your mascot, and it has like shaped the whole brand around. You know, it's a super fun, easy, engaging app. Um, and now, like. So now Twitter is rebranded re to X. So like Duolingo is probably the only famous app that has Bird as a mascot. So <laughs> could you, could you like, do you like, because you, you've been here for a couple of years, how do you think about branding and how, how did you see the whole Duolingo brand shaping up around that logo and around those fun interactive things that you do overall? Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I was just, I, uh, the only other one I can think of right now is Angry Birds. I think Romeo. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, is, no, I'm just, I was trying to think of like, what other birds are out there? But yeah, Angry Birds, which actually we've done a collaboration with them. We had our, that's great. We had our green bird and they had their red bird. Um, so yes, you're, you're absolutely right. It's a pretty integral part of, I mean, Duo is, is our brand, uh, is a large part of our brand. There are other parts of our brand, a lot of our characters that I'll talk about in a second. Um, but Duo has long been a driver of our brand. And one funny tidbit that people love to share is the only reason the company is green and that the apple is green is because our co-founder, Severin Hacker, hates the color green. Yeah, I know that. Yeah, our, our CEO. I think some of the CMU students know that um, yeah. since the company was founded out of CMU. But um, so it's green for that reason. There's a lot of green around the office, which is fun. Um, and it was one of those where we always had duo. And I think over time, our marketing team and, and all of us started to realize 
how obsessed people were with Duo. People loved when he showed up in the app. So of course we had a big initiative to just try to put him in more places in the app and give him more personality. There was a big redesign we did in 2018, which was called Juicy. So our design language is called Juicy. And part of it was realizing that our old owl, and if you see our pre-2018 owl, it's kind of this very 3D one, um, just didn't have very many expressions. It was very hard actually to, from an art style, to give him expression. Like he mostly just had like a kind of passive face, like a crying face. And our head of art, Greg Hartman, um, very intentionally redesigned Duo such that he could be more expressive. So now if you use the app, he's sometimes crying, he's sometimes spitting on people, throwing up, like he does crazy stuff now. And actually part of that was very much so an art perspective. We were able to give more personality. The other thing that we really realized was we were looking at our audience a lot and looking at our subreddit and looking at Twitter and YouTube and like places where our brand was starting to show up and realizing that people were starting to see Duo as this kind of manic, crazy owl that was trying to get, um, trying to get you to do your lesson. And we saw these memes popping up of like Duo showing up at your back door all sorts of other crazy things. And we really leaned into that. So our April Fool's campaign started leaning into that. We started using copy like that in our push notifications. We started doing that in our emails to try and get you to actually um, ask, you know, try and actually get you back on the app. And I think it's just a good case of, you know, we started with this, this gamification, this owl. We started understanding how people actually were seeing him. And then as a company and as a product, we really, really lean into that brand. Excellent. Excellent. That's that's such a great story because I've always been fascinated about uh, how Duolingo has created like a good brand recognition. So everywhere you see uh, those those mascots, you definitely realize it's Duolingo. Um, was this done to like attract a certain cohort of target audience, let's say kids? Or it was like the branding was within the ethos when was like starting since the inception of the company. We always had it. And I can't, I don't honestly think it was trying to target a specific audience. Um, it's a good note, but I think uh, to be honest, I don't think we were quite that targeted about it. Okay. One thing we have started trying to understand though better is the brand recognition of our characters. Uh, mm -hmm. and in different audiences so alongside duo there's a cast of 10 world characters as we call them there's lily who's this purple haired emo girl there's eddie who's this like funny red you know dad who's the father of junior there are all these characters that show up in the app and they're the same recurring characters that happened in around 2019 or 2020 that we added all those and we've really started to try and build up brand ip around those characters as well okay. um duo is such a strong personality mm -hmm wild but of course like in order to teach you languages and tell you about different cultures and all sorts of other things we have this cast of diverse characters and and that's another place where we've also started trying to lean in i'm sure our marketing team has been thinking about certain things okay well this character probably relates really well in this country with this segment uh, yeah. where this character might do better other, other places yeah definitely i think a couple of uh, companies all across the world do this so I, I was in south korea for a couple of months and i think out there Cacao is already a big brand. Uh, like it's it's one of the major companies, and they have like a Cacao line of characters, yeah. uh, which they call Cacao Friends. And then I think Line Messenger also does does a similar uh, right. thing, which which they call Line Friends. Um, and I think it's it's mostly like Disney like thing where you know they they just created this incredible characters over a long enough time scale and. Like those characters now resonate the brand, uh, so it's it's I think it's a great great story to learn. Yeah, we're not we're uh we're not quite Disney, uh we're not yeah. quite Nintendo, but we, um we have, once again we have this we we've drawn a lot of inspiration from other game companies, other apps, uh, so like mm -hmm. Rovio and Supercell, who creates Clash of Clans, um they've been great inspiration for us in terms of when we actually wanted to start creating this this world of characters. We have a really unique, this is not just with our artwork, but with all of our product changes at Duolingo, we have a really unique culture of just getting on the phone with other companies and trying to talk to them. We have a lot of companies like these, you know, Supercell is not one of our competitors. Perhaps it's a competitor for your time because you're, you know, it's either you play Clash of Clans or you do Duolingo, 
you can do both, but maybe not at the same time. And we have a lot of great deep connections with the gaming industry that allow us to just jump on the phone with them and say, hey, we're thinking about this new this new character system. What do you guys think of this? You guys are the experts. We get a lot of feedback and we have a really kind of external facing collaboration going on with a lot of different companies. Great, great. Okay, sounds great. So um, yeah, so let's take a short turn, right turn, um, and come back to the your experience implementing the ChatGPT4 into Duolingo. Cause you know, like you talked on the config 2023 and I, I watched the whole speech. It was really good. And you were talking about like AI should have a, should have a strong opinion. And also, you know, we need to have a very fun, a very product like niche and a unique page but that's those like takeaway seems like more on a like company level com whole company level and design level so i'm more interested into that into uh your takeaways as a pm so first of all like when you are incorporating chat gpt4 into the product what does the experience looks like like how does a, the you know the whole procedure different from implementing a new customer like normal customer feature so i know like you have to you know probably uh let the whole company to prepare a bunch of prompts and say which is the best outcome and the input so like as a pm how do you drive the whole new like production pipeline so like embark to embarrassing the, you know, the AI. Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, thank you for watching the the talk. Uh, it was a lot of fun and, and uh, Megan and I were, uh, I mean, Megan was just amazing and my co-presenter in terms of being able to create all the content. We had a we had an awesome time. So it was a big thanks to Figma for having us out for it. Um, so one big thing is that a lot of our processes have actually remained mostly the same, which is great. So what I was saying earlier about you know, build a great product experience and move your KPIs. Like that's still core to what we're doing. It's just, I think we see now GPT as being like a really awesome tool to build with. And we're, we're at the forefront of building consumer products with this technology. So a lot of those things remain the same actually, which is, okay, can we make sure we know exactly what learners are struggling with? You know, for instance, they're not uh, getting opportunities to speak or they're not getting opportunities to listen or converse with somebody. Um, can you figure out a good way to solve the problem? And then can you actually implement and measure that you're making an effective change? It really is that like solution generation part that starts to become like, that's very much so changed, um, building with GPT. And if you, you know, you, you happen to watch the talk, one of the takeaways we try to add there is called start with the prompt, um, which is essentially like you will generally have a solution or a, a problem you want to solve. And then what we've been doing is we just go out and we just start saying, okay, if I had this omniscient, insanely smart bot, which is essentially GPT, what would I ask it to do? Like, here's this problem. Okay, you, wanna, you want this grammar concept explained. Well, let me type in this grammar concept and see if you can explain it. And starting to understand the limits better about what can it actually do. That's maybe an oversimplified version, but that's we've done some things similar to that and trying to understand like, what are the limits of the technology? What can it do really well? going back and taking that to our AI researchers and sitting down with them and saying like, is this actually going to work? Like, is this the right way to approach this problem? Should we just be like hail and pill marrying it to GPT-4 or should we actually try a more systematic approach to solving this problem? We refine it a few times. We try and figure out what our prompt strategy is going to be or what our AI strategy is going to be or whether or not we even need AI. Um, and then from there, we kind of follow the same process again. We we put together some wireframes to build a prototype. In parallel, we're doing some of the design, we're starting some of the engineering to actually get it to the app so we can play with it in our own hands. And then for the prompting, it's really easy to get a demo that works pretty well. And I don't know what number that is, but like 60% of the time, it's going to give you something you like. Then there's like another 30 or 20% of that that's going to be like, okay. And then there's another 20% where you just have no idea how it's going to do. And very much so like a long tail. And that's something we've been trying to build a muscle on better. So it's how do you actually go from that? Like, yeah, it's 60% good. Like you can pitch a demo to the CEO. It's like, great, this thing works. And then you put it in the app and you realize, oh my gosh, it doesn't work 20% of the time. And we have kind of two approaches to that that have helped us really solve this problem. 
The first one is putting really strong subject material, subject matter experts behind the prompt writing. So for us, that's learning scientists. So we have learning scientists and learning designers that are really, really good and went to school and went to, you know, have PhDs for how, what's the best way to learn. And so they actually are ones who are able to say, okay, well, here's what the prompt should actually be outputting. And here's what a good output looks like. Here's how I can write the prompt to actually cover a larger percentage of those bases. The second thing we're trying to get better at is evaluation because you can sit down you can, you know, try and do a few role play conversations and you're going to get through maybe four or five before you get tired, honestly. Um, Whereas we need to actually evaluate this on like a, a thousands scale before we put this out. So we're investing in a lot of tools to actually do more automated um, analysis of how the bot's doing and how prompt changes end up changing uh, the output. Uh, and, and that's kind of our two. Sorry, I may have rambled there a little bit, but that's our, our two prong approach right. a bit of how we approach yeah, this. Yeah, that, that sounds really, yeah, I actually want to follow up with a small question because um, prompt engineering Chrome engineering is such a hot topic lately. So, um, and also I'm also fine tuning the ChatGPT lately. So like how many prompts like did you actually make like probably in your database to say, okay, this is all the prompt, like the perfect prompt I have. And I will just gonna to use this into the model to fine tuning it. And like, is there a specific metric like you think probably, okay, I think right now, like 90%, uh, the ChatGPT can provide 90% of uh, the best outcome we we anticipate. So like, how does those like looks like? And, you know, as PM, we cannot like write all the prompts because different, we cannot, you know, different users have different habits to write the keywords and their prompts. So how do we, deal with the challenges and how do we deal with the models hallucination problem? Got it. So two things come to mind there. The first one on like fine tuning or kind of having the right number of um, the right number of use cases or examples. One thing that we leave not a lot. So we've, we fine tuned a few earlier models. We haven't done any fine tuning on on 4.0, but we have a couple models that we've had either for a long time or also ones that are more new to the new max features that are like 3.0 models. And with those, you can fine tune with a few hundred uh, good examples, uh, like representative examples. One thing we've actually done, which requires you to have users, of course, but we uh, just do a random sampling from what our learners are accessing. We essentially, we already had some of the, the um, those prompts running and we were getting some some responses back. And we were able to actually go through and record and say, okay, well, here's a response that we got back from GPT-4. Oh, that's bad. This is good. This is bad. This is good. And actually like hand label a, a subset of those and actually use that as training data. Um, and that's really great because it gives you a pretty representative sample of what people are actually experiencing and actually starts to help you focus on the right problem. Especially when you're just kind of like trying to write sample cases where you're like, well, let me just make up a bunch of examples of what mm -hmm. they could be experiencing you start to get a little bit further away from the actual problem at hand. And so we try to do our best to actually write on examples that we see from learners um, in the app just to keep it more topical. As far as the hallucinations go, um, we have done quite a bit of things to try and like mitigate those. I mean, that's a clear, it's something that, you know, is widely known that, that it can do, but of course that's something we don't want it doing in the app. So actually, currently, we still have a team of contractors that help with evaluations. So if we'll make significant updates to the prompt, we run a bunch of those batch outputs on that, those sample real learner outputs uh, and scenarios. And then we send that actually to a team of contractors that we have, and they'll actually hand grade for different columns, such as, does the tone feel correct? Does it feel like Duolingo tone? Is it factually accurate? Um, is it relevant and helpful? doesn't seem like it's actually robust enough to teach the learner something as opposed to just kind of surface level, tell them something. Um, so we we kind of try to approach it in terms of a, let's measure the problem and also see if we can actually improve the problem over time. Mm, interesting. Yeah, very awesome to, to learn about that. You actually use a user, like the user's cards to train the model that will like bridge the gap between the model and the users. But you also you also mentioned that you will like double check the tools 
the the model is talking. So will you actually um like let the model say I need your tone to be very funny or lighthearted or like how do you define the so-called dolingo tone? That is one that is part of that brand, actually, that brand effort we've talked about in the past. Um, and there's kind of two things. There's the, how do you explain something that's highly technical, so like grammatical concepts and language, without boring the daylights out of the learner? And so that's a very, we have a great team of content designers who have helped us kind of refine this tone we've used in our tips that are in the app and our guidebooks and our grammatical concepts that are already in the app. So we've got a great baseline to already kind of start off of. And a lot of the prompting that we do is actually based on examples. So like, can you give it really good examples that help it understand, here's how I should speak to the learner. Um, the other thing we do, which is, so that's more on the explain my answer use case, which is you make a mistake and we actually explain, here's how you, here's why you got it wrong. The other use case we have is role play, which is more like a conversation back and forth. You can say, hey, let's, you know, role play me walking into a cafe in Paris and we're going to order a cup of coffee. Um, in that case, we actually have you talking to our world characters that I mentioned earlier. So Lily, the sarcastic emo teenager, or Falstaff, who's like a fictional bear that talks and is kind of grumpy, which is wild saying that, but that's one of our characters. And we actually have what we call character packs. We have each one of the characters has this big list of like their personality traits and certain properties of them. And like the fact that Lucy used to be a spy and funny things like that. And we actually inject those into the prompt and tell GBT, hey, like, here's who you are playing as. You have all these concepts, you have all these conversations. Here's how Eddie would say the sentence, but here's how Lily would say the sentence. And you are Lily, the emo teenage girl. And that way, actually, we don't always have like a friendly tone with Lily. Sometimes Lily will say stuff that's like kind of monotone or kind of boring or kind of like jabby. But it's all part of um, kind of what we, we think differentiates us a little bit is actually having some brand that's integrated really well into our AI products. Great. Awesome. Um, I, I wanted to ask this, this question to you. So as you mentioned, you do a lot of validation testing where you're kind of comparing the outputs through uh, GPT-4 to, you know, what they should be based on like feedback from, you know, content designers and language researchers. Um, so like this is like my vision on how GPT-4 and these large language models would evolve. And it, I, I think that, you know, over, over the course of time, as they evolve further and further, we'll have like, we'll have like a specific LLM, uh, which let's say focuses on healthcare, a specific LLM for law and specific LLM for, you know, research. Do you sometimes feel when you're like working uh, with GPT-4 that, you know, this is great, but I wish this could be like more tuned towards learning a new language or the current state of, of LLMs is so developed that they are pretty much uh, adopting to any kind of field that you throw at it? So it's, it's, I feel like it's one of those where we don't yet know what we don't know in some degree. So like okay. we still, there's, there's, um, I actually, I think I agree with you. I think we're going to move more to this world. We're going to have like more specific, more narrow models that are, you know, I hope that over time it becomes easier for people to train their own models to these, to these things. Um, one benefit we've had is we're working mostly in some of the larger languages that are accessible on the internet, but it's going to be interesting to see what happens, excuse me, as we move more towards languages that are perhaps a bit smaller and where there's actually like less knowledge available about them. And that's going to be one thing that really specifically for language learning is going to be interesting for us. So that might be something where it really becomes a benefit where we start to see those effects later on. Um, but for now, like it does extremely well. Like we are years ahead of, I think, where we ever thought we were going to be. Uh, and and it, it still, even though it does have such an insane amount of knowledge, it still does a very good job at narrowing in on a specific use case um, and, and being able to explain Spanish or French or whatever language quite well, you know. Great, great. Um, yes. So, yeah. Oh, you go for So, yeah. So, as you were talking about the different like models, different like different fields will have its large language models. So, I'm actually more interesting like in long term. How do you think like AI will 
impact on language learning, let's say uh, Duolingo, because we say, we mentioned this at the very beginning of this talk is basically we saw a lot of unicorns and the startup, they are basically using the large language models or other technology like text-to-speech to build all different like apps. So like, how do you think like Duolingo uh, will, you know, perform in this new competition? Because it seems like this AI boom is so um, disruptive. And, uh, you know, like, I would, I would say like large language model probably have the most, like the largest impact on the uh, learning and the future adaptation. So yeah, I'm curious about your thoughts. Yeah, well, one thing first and foremost is in, we've, we've been using AI for a long time. We've been, I mean, AI driven for, I actually don't even know how many years, but I, well, I wanna say 10 or 11, cause that's how long we've been around, but we've been using both our own AI models, but then also a lot of, we were early, early for like GPT-3 and some of these other models. So it's a continued case where we continue to invest in it, which is awesome. Um, and we find ourselves actually quite at the forefront of a lot of these. That all said, uh, I think there's probably two main points we think about a lot, which are, there's a lot of noise, a lot of hype, but I think retention is one of the biggest and most important things. And if you have like a leaky faucet, if you have a product where tons of people are just dropping out of it, you won't last. Uh, and so that's one thing we really think about is we think of like AI is we're, we are integrating AI. It's a huge part of our strategy, but of course, first and foremost, you have to build a product that is really sticky and keep people around. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, we, we do a great job of our street mechanic and all sorts of other things like that. Uh, and we'll continue to make sure we're doing a great part of, um, but other, other companies will have to think about that. And it's how do you actually, it's gonna be a lot of hype, but how do you actually keep all those people? Yeah. Um, the second quick thing would just be uh, that we are currently in a place where we actually have a couple of our um, generative AI features behind the Duolingo Max paywall, but that's not our long-term strategy. We were we, teams across the entire company are working with generative AI and finding ways to actually create content or create experiences that are powered by it, but that are actually able for us to give it to our you know, millions and millions of daily active users. Um, so that's a big thing. And I think a thing that we think about a lot day in and day out, which is, hey, this is a technology that's going to be ubiquitous pretty soon in education and language learning, which is an awesome thing. Let's make sure that, you know, we're not blindsided by just put it, putting it behind a paywall and we make sure it's ubiquitous in the product. Gotcha, gotcha. So sustainability also is still very important. And also we need to... Yeah, just as you mentioned in your talk in the config, AI is just a tool for the subject master expert, not a replacement. Awesome. Great. Um, sticking to the topic of AI, um, but like bringing the focus back to, let's say, a work of a product manager, and you can like relate it with your work too. What, like, how should a PM upskill themselves? keeping in mind this this whole AI landscape and then how how is like a PM workflow changing now? Like, do you see that impact within your day-to-day -day work too? How, how are you like keeping pace with things? And what advice do you have for let's say young product managers? I think curi curiosity is probably the biggest one that comes to mind. Um, just being able to just get in there and try things it's great because also like i mean a couple, a couple of us have like technical backgrounds that's always been helpful for being able to kind of get involved with new technologies but this one is so accessible like i mean i taught my mom how to use it which is awesome and like to make recipes and stuff you know there's things like that where you can anybody can can get involved with it and um I think that just means like you can build so, so easily. I think, um, till you were mentioning you're, you're also building something. Um, you know, I think it's, it's just the case where like we just, people just need to be on top of it and aware of what they can do. Cause it's a really awesome tool and understanding how to apply that tool is going to be absolutely essential to figuring out, okay, well, what kind of products, what's, what's the new limit of products that you can build in this new space. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, some great tips for for PMs. I think they'll have a lot of takeaway from this conversation. So this brings us to you know uh, a very interesting 
uh, piece of the conversation. So this is called the worthy three. So three quick rapid fire questions. Um, usually not related to the topic of the conversation, but I think they're they're fun. And this this question is definitely the newest addition uh, to the podcast. And I really, we both really thought that this will be a good good thing to ask because a lot of people apply to Duolingo from CMU that that I know from a fact. So it'll be a good takeaway. Uh, what is the most frequent question do you ask in a product interview? I love asking, um, what's your favorite app and how would you improve it? Um, it's really interesting to see why people are enjoying things. I also am like a nerd about apps, so it's great to actually uh, get get some new ideas or get some thoughts from from other folks. And then also really cool to see kind of the way that people break down products and think about um, what sort of changes they want to make if they were a product manager at that company. Great. And how often do you do you get Duolingo as an answer? I get it uh, frequently, but I constantly say, let's not talk about this one because we... Uh... Yeah, yeah. Don't try to impress me. <laughs> that's that's nice. Okay. Next question is, uh, can you tell us a bit uh, tell us about your most uh, impressive travel experience. Probably, like in the trip, you have to rely on Duolingo to, uh, like learn a totally new language. Or if you can, you know, um, describe that experience in a second language. Uh, but how do you think about it? I'll, I'll spare everyone my my Spanish. Um, but I. I spent a summer in Nicaragua uh, working in hospitals uh, with a program from my university back when I was there, uh, which is really, really awesome. Spent time in two different homestays uh, in different parts of the country. Um, got to really use my Spanish all the time. I lived in two homestays where they didn't speak English. Um, got to just really meet some amazing people and then also get to do some work down there as well. Uh, and we traveled as well on the weekends, which is fun. You got to see it's a beautiful country. Um, and I think at the end of the summer, I was downloading Duolingo. Honestly, actually, to you to learn French because I was about to go to France to study abroad. So didn't use it to learn Spanish because I luckily already knew quite a bit of Spanish. Uh, and to be honest, I actually don't think I knew what Duolingo was before I went to Nicaragua. Okay, okay, cool. Uh, so last question is, what's your favorite quote or what is something you like you truly believe in a long term um yeah and if you can say it in english both in english and uh, french that would be great oh god oh i'll definitely i'll spare you my french as well i i definitely don't know how to say some of these things but i'll figure it out and i'll come back with the, the french expression okay. um, the one that came to mind first was was ship it uh, which is something we say a lot in the product org, but all across the company, which is one of our operating principles at Duolingo, but it's really just, just get it out the door. Like, let's do it. Um, it's short, it's snappy. Uh, it's, it's also just the way we operate, which is let's, let's move fast. Let's try and get things out the door and learn really quickly, which is what all of this is about is let's put out a great product. Let's learn from it. Let's try and see if we can grow the business and then, um, keep on moving. Love that mindset. Great, great, great. Great. So this brings us to, to the end of the conversation. It was a pleasure to have you on the show, Edwin, and thank you for taking out the time. 